Good morning. So we are finishing the book of Ephesians this morning. And Ephesians 1 through 3, there was a lot of deep theology. And then in Ephesians 4 through 6, it's mostly, it's application of that. So Ephesians 1 through 3 gives teaching. 4 through 6 says, therefore, because of that teaching, this is how you should live out. And we just saw that last week with family relationships. And now we come to chapter 6, the classic text on spiritual warfare. Um, I'll read from Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20 to get the scripture on the table. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take a stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. There are several models or several ways that Christians engage in spiritual warfare. And there are two big dangers to doing it improperly. C.S. Lewis, in his novel, The Screwtape Letters, at the very beginning, Lewis says this. He says, quote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both heirs and hail a, uh, hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. This morning I want to talk very generally about spiritual warfare and correct what I think to be some mistaken biblical practices so that we can avoid um, wasting opportunities for engaging in spiritual warfare by going down the wrong path. So the first thing to, that we want to understand um, about spiritual warfare is it's not narrowly focused just on demons and devils. That's often how it's construed in some Christian practices and Christian living. It's broader. Spiritual warfare is warfare that we engage in in the Christian life. And the Christian life has three enemies. The flesh, the world, and the devil. So proper world view, uh, warfare is focused on all three enemies. One long front with three different enemies. The flesh, the Bible describes as um, our sinful nature. It's called the flesh. Um, it's most likely because there is a connection between that and our body. Our, our sort of animal urges play some sort of role in the way that we um, sin. But um, the, the uh, flesh, sometimes called the old man or the old nature, that's what we got from Adam at the fall. It's a built-in tendency or natural disposition for, to sin to think sinfully, to want sinful things, to do sinful things. It's hardwired into us. We do it naturally. We don't have to practice. We don't have to work. We can just sit back on the couch and we do this easily, right? Um, so the flesh, uh, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 5 through 8, that those who live according to the flesh have their mindset on fleshly desires. Again, think of our basic instincts. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mindset on spiritual desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. When you're ruled by your animal instincts, and, and you're ruled by them, you don't control them, you go down a road that leads to death. 
Uh, Galatians chapter 5 gives us a list describing the flesh. It says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage and selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. So all of our sinful tendencies that are built into us, the Bible calls that our sinful nature or our flesh. This is the main enemy that most of us have to deal with in our everyday life. The world and the, and the devil are, are serious and real, but if you're honest, the main problem with your spiritual walk is you. The main problem with your life is you. you the, big en the biggest enemy in your life is not a coworker, it's not a family member, it's you. And if any reflection on your life and my life makes that fairly obvious, generalizing. There are some cases where you're legitimately a victim. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just general, normal, average experiences. Uh, so we have this hardwired tendency to want to sin, and that's the one that really gets us. Of the three enemies, it's the only internal one. It's the one that's internal. And... Um, uh, and it's, it's difficult to fight against. The scriptures give us lots of different tools that in many, many sermons in the past, Kevin and others have discussed. Uh, I just want to note that not everyone thinks this. Um, some people point out, uh, a Jewish guy I listen to says, look, this is the difference between a religious person and a secular person. The religious person thinks that they're the biggest problem in their life. The secular person tends to think that society is the biggest problem in their life. Uh, there's a debate in the in Enlightenment uh, around this. Some philosophers said, yeah, we have this sinful tendency that we're born with, and society is sinful because it's made up of sinful people. We create sis, um, sinful systems and structures, and so society becomes sinful. There's others like the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau who said, no, 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 we're born innocent. We're born um, good. And it's only when we enter into society that we get corrupted. Society teaches us how to be selfish, how to be lustful, how to be greedy, how to be racist. It's society that causes our problems. He, he had the term the noble savage, meaning if you had a person who was not in society at all, say, you know, a Native American who was, again, not even part of a tribe, right? And that's the ideal life. That guy's going to be perfect because he was born, say, and he wasn't corrupted by society yet. He was born good and not corrupted yet. Well, the Christian view is um, you're born corrupt. You inherited it from Adam. It's a big deal. This is your biggest enemy. Secondly, the second enemy is the world. Now, the Bible says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So God loves the world. But the world, the term the world in the Bible gets used different ways. Sometimes it's the planet, earth. Sometimes it's the people of the world. He loves the whole world, you know, Jews and Gentiles, all the people of the world. And it's also used to describe the sinful system that governs the way we behave and the way we live. So uh, uh, one example of that is in um, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. It's, it says this, do not love the world. Well, wait a minute. Jesus just loved the world. Yeah, he loved the people of the world. This is now the world system, the sinful system. I remember when I was younger, we would watch TV and you would see the commercial in the 80s for ABC Wide World of Sports. Well, it wasn't some planet of sports somewhere. You get in a rocket and like, wow, this planet's all sports. It was our world, but it was the system, the worldwide system of sports, right? And so the, the worldly system we're talking about, economic systems, social systems, family systems, um, 
um, um, all sorts of systems have been corrupted. And when the Bible says do not love the world, they mean do not love the worldly system or anything in the world. If, the lo if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the, the flesh is our sort of instinct base animal instincts, the lust of the flesh then is, you know, you, one thing I liked about living in the United Arab Emirates is a Sharia light country. We go to the mall, and they did have, for example, uh, Victoria's Secret. But they didn't have any picture. The picture they had on the, on the outside of the store was a close-up of a face. I'm like, all right, I can, this is good. No lust of the, of the flesh uh, in that system there, at least, um, compared to going to any mall in the United States. Um, so the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, none of it comes from the Father but from the world, and we're to reject it. So our second enemy is this world system. And this world system does twist us. It does cause us to act in ways that we shouldn't. And it is difficult to fight against it. Another way to think of the world system is just the spirit of the age. Like, what's going on? And, and there's different... The world system changes over time. What were the big evil systems in place in the 60s, in the 70s? 2,000 years, they were different. But nevertheless, there was a system around us that was sinful and is an enemy of the Christian life. And then lastly, uh, one other point about the world, the world is controlled ultimately by God, but sort of in the middle there, it's controlled by Satan. The Bible makes this clear over and over and over again. Jesus says this. He says, the voice, him talking in John chapter 12, the voice that you hold in the wilderness, uh, now this is a time of judgment on the world. Now the prince of this world will drive you out. So no, Satan's called the prince of this world. The prince or you know, king, prince of this world. Later, Jesus says in John 14 that the prince of this world is coming and he has no hold over me. Again, Jesus himself says prince of this world. And there's other Bible verses. Remember the temptation of Jesus where uh, Jesus says, um, or the devil says, look, look at all these kingdoms. Just worship me and I'll give them to you, implying that he has some sort of authority to give them over, right? So it's not just that there's a sinful world system. There's nefarious spiritual forces behind it. It's not just round up like a clock and everyone's doing their own thing and it ends up doing lots of bad stuff. There, we, there's plenty of that, but in addition to that, there's negative spiritual forces behind the world system. Let me just read Revelation 12, uh, parts of Revelation 12, where it discusses Satan, Satan coming to earth, and then Satan's mission here. It says, a war broke out in heaven. This is Revelation 12:7. Michael, the archangel, and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. Who's the great dragon? That ancient serpent called, called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to earth with his angels, and woe to you, because the devil has gone down to you. When he saw, uh, he is filled with fury, the dragon, because he knows his time is short. When he saw the dragon, he had been giving birth to the angel, to, uh, sorry, when he saw the dragon, he had been hurled to earth. He pursued the woman, the woman is probably uh, uh, Mary or the church, uh, probably Mary. And then the, the child that gives birth to is probably the church. So he, the devil sees this Mary give birth to Jesus, which results in the birth of the church. And uh, he hates this male child. And it says the woman's given uh, this ability to flee, but it says that 
the dragon was enraged against the woman and went off to wage a war against the rest of her offspring, the church. So not only is the world this system that conspires to, to undermine our walk with Christ, it's not just a random uh, uh, series of events. It's guided to some extent by darker forces. And those darker forces, it's easy and tempting, especially in our politically div divided environment, to say, yeah, it's true, I see all these evil trends in the world, and it's the Democrats, or it's the Republicans. Look, we need to be discerning of what's going on in our world, but we shouldn't be narrowly partisan, really, what the devil's in doing is it's, he's a Democrat or a Republican. I mean, let's not narrow it down too much. What it makes clear here in Revelation and also in Daniel, where you see a similar pattern, is the main target of Satan when he's ma manipulating world events is the church. He's trying to destroy the church. Does he care about Mexico or the United States, Canada? He's like, I got to get, get Canada, man. I, I'm going to, you know, what he cares about is the church. Even the United States, we're 250 years old. This guy's been doing a lot more damage and focusing on humanity before that. That's not to say that political trends don't have satanic forces about them. I'm only warning us to not jump to our partisan preferences and automatically start blaming or seeing the, what the other party is doing as satanic. I mean, some of them would be odd, right? The devil wants low taxes. He does? Or the devil wants high taxes. Come on. Really, he's not an accountant fighting about taxes, right? So other, other issues. So... The devil is a powerful ruler of the demons. And Jesus, uh, in Mark chapter 3, verse 22, Jesus casts out demons his whole ministry. And um, I won't quote it here, but the fact that Jesus himself teaches that demons are real means that if you are a Christian, you have to believe that demons are real. What it means to be a Christian is, I'm a disciple of this guy. I follow him. I believe what he believes. I, I behave and order my life in the way that he tells me to. So it'd be odd if you say, I follow a guy who was a healer, who cast out demons, who spoke and taught about demons, but I don't believe in that stuff. Uh, fair enough, but maybe you should be really reticent to call yourself a Christ follower. Like, um, because, of course, our Lord believed in these things. Now, some people go to the other extreme. They say, well, look, are there really demons? I mean, have you seen one? Um, they're you, you can't see them. They're difficult to see. Um, also, like, how would demons, there's lots of intellectual issues, they say, how would demons causally interact with the world? I mean, the, we've taught this in philosophy, but think about this. Suppose I was a ghost. Remember that movie Ghost with Demi Moore? Suppose you were a ghost and I wanted to pick up this Diet Coke. Oh, my hand goes through it. How, how could, if I was, how could I interact with physical things if I'm non-physical? And so people say, well, that's, see, there's lots of problems with demons. Without going into a lot of detail on any of this, it's important to understand this. Any problem or most problems that people have intellectually with believing in demons applies to God as well. God's not a physical being, but no one thinks, oh, God, how could God causally interact with the world? There are not many people. It doesn't, for lots of reasons. Again, I won't get into the philosophy or apologetics. But if you believe in God, it's no extra work to believe in demons. You've already, all the difficulties with demons, you've already accepted just when it comes to God. So um, um, that's important to understand. Plus, another objection, people say, look, we used to, people used to think that mentally ill people were demonic. In Ethiopia, we went to a monastery that was relatively near our house called Debra Labanos. And it was a place, because it was a monastery, where people who were healed, uh, sick, came for healing, 
and where people who are demon-possessed came for deliverance. And there were people there, um, old, one time there was a little old lady bent over, Ethiopian lady, so not big, old, bent over, growling, the Ethiopians are with, with Sadat and the jib, like a hyena, like a wolf, growling like a wolf. Sweet old grandma. I guess it's like the three pigs, right? Um, I guess the wolf got to her. Um, now, when you see something like that, and I also have experience with other people who also, um, what they would tell me, people I knew directly and indirectly, when I go to church, or Orthodox Christians, not, not evangelicals, I go to church, I start to act like I'm demon-possessed. I can't go to a church if holy water touches me, same thing, and they just melt down and have to be carried out, and they're spitting and swearing and fighting and scratching. Now, and, and, and in one of the cases, it was a, a woman who was roughly 35 who couldn't get pregnant, and she was swore that a childhood rival of hers had put a curse on her, and that it was a demon that was preventing her from getting pregnant. Now, when I look at something like that, the people I saw... Yeah, externally, they certainly look demon-possessed. Just open-minded, it really looked like it. Could it be mental illness? Yes, it absolutely could be. I can't tell. You can't tell. It's hard to tell from the outside. If you only had to believe in demons based upon experience, it'd be difficult. But Scripture tells us they exist. So I know they're, they're, they're real. And yeah, in the Middle Ages and in ancient times, they didn't understand schizophrenia and mental illness like we did. So they took the number of legitimate demon possessions and overextended it and threw a lot more people into that category than weren't there. Because we know now that many of them aren't demon-possessed, but instead it's mental illness, shrinks the total set of people that we think maybe are demon-possessed, but it doesn't get rid of it. Yeah, because those guys went overboard, understandably so, given the worldview, doesn't mean that, oh, now that means I can't believe in any demonic possession. That doesn't follow, it doesn't make sense. It just means we should be really careful when we see something like that, to automatically label it either way. If it's mental illness and you label it demonic possession, you're not helping the person. If it's demonic possession and it's, uh, but then you treat them with medicine or something, or counseling, uh, I don't know if you could really counsel a demon out of a person, right? Um, I'm being, I'm joking a bit here, but you gotta get it right, and it's hard to get right. That's why we have to have trust in scripture. So um, demons are real. A Christian has to believe that. Maybe the world doesn't. Uh, fine, I understand that. But for Christians, if you follow Christ, it's not a negotiable. Uh, spiritual warfare, then, is the practice of fighting against all three of these enemies, broadly. But when we focus on the demonic side and the devil side, it's important to understand that there are different models of spiritual warfare. One very prominent model I want to spend some time on correcting, um, because I think it's wrong and unbiblical. Now, let me be clear about this. There's different ways you can make mistakes in teaching. You can teach false things. It doesn't necessarily mean you're a false teacher. And you think, wait a minute, if you teach false things, isn't that the definition of a false teacher? No, it seems like in the New Testament, a false teacher is someone who teaches false things on things that matter or that causes internal problems. I mean, from one perspective, um, I'm sure there's things that I believe that when I get to heaven, I'll, I'll find out I was wrong. Was I walking around my whole life being a false, on small things or whatever, theology here or there. I mean, when Christians disagree on, say, speaking in tongues, I don't believe in speaking in tongues, but I respect my friends who do. Do I think they're false teachers? That's too strong of a word. They're teaching things that are mistaken, uh, and they're not crazy. There's verses in the Bible that discuss speaking in tongues that are perfectly legit. I just happen to disagree. And the same thing here. 
There are good, godly men who teach some of this stuff, um, and they're wrong. And they're wrong in a way that can be harmful and can do damage and can be hurtful, but the people who teach behind it are not, usually, uh, I wouldn't call them false teachers, I would just call them fellow believers that are wrong and wrong on a medium-level teaching. Um, I'll just give you two examples. Um, Mark I. Bubeck, who wrote the book The Adversary, which is very, very popular. And many of you have probably heard of Neil T. Anderson, The Bondage Breaker. If you haven't, uh, it's a very common book. And then C. Peter Wagner, who was a professor at Fuller. They are, these are smart, educated men who are wrong. The problem is, when it comes to their teaching on spiritual warfare, not only do they get it wrong, but then people who are less balanced than them, less take that, and then they warp it even more. So what you get is some really extreme, bizarre teaching in the Christian church about spiritual warfare. And I want to discuss some of those and correct them. And remember, here's our standard, the Bible. The Bible's our standard. When someone makes a claim, please show me in the Bible where that is. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to hear a claim. We're going to examine what they say is the Bible verse 4. And I want you to read the Bible verse or listen to me read it to you and ask yourself, is that what it's teaching? So let me give you a few examples. The first one is the most benign. It's praying a thorn of hedges around somebody. So somebody might uh, be in a certain situation, and P Christians will do warfare prayer, it's called. And they'll say, Lord, we pray a uh, hedge of protection, a thorn of hedges, they often say, around so-and-so. Okay. By itself, if you mean that metaphorically, no problem. If you're just saying protect John, that's not a problem, and you're, and you're using a metaphor for it. But... The problem with this model of spiritual warfare I'm discussing is that they don't mean these things merely metaphorically. They have a magical, mystical, metaphysical view of the world. It's sort of like in this room right now, there's like a fifth dimensional overlay with demons and angels in here. That world, okay? That world where, again, think of the movie Ghost or whatever, right? And that world, they make very elaborate. So they think when you pray a prayer of hedges, that literally there's some sort of ghost hedges going around you, and the demons can see it, and they can't get to you. Well, that's metaphysical. And it's magical in the sense of magic is when you pray, when you say words, incantations, spells in certain ways, and your words have an act, and according to certain sets of rules, you got to get the words right, the order right, has an effect in the mystical, metaphysical realm. Think Harry Potter. Think of any of these things. You say the words right, something happens, right? So they say, if I say it this way, that there'll be a hedge, a, a, a mystical hedge around them. It's not merely a metaphor. Where do they get this? Well, in Job, um, Satan comes to Job and, and God says, hey, Job, uh, God says, hey, Satan, you like my guy Job? He's like, yeah, he's great, but it's because you put a hedge around him, protecting him. So they say, oh, Job has a hedge around him. Yeah, God protected his life, his children, his livelihood, he's wealthy, he's prosperous. It was a metaphor for protection, not a mystical, superimposed on reality, uh, metaphysical stuff, non-spiritual stuff, right, that was prayed there. But again, it's relatively minor if you just think it metaphysically. But just be aware, when you hear people praying that, they might believe the more malicious stuff. So here's another one. This one you might have heard a lot. Praying against generational and familial spirits. The idea here is this, that Demons often are assigned specific sins. So let's say someone has a lust problem. It might be because a demon of lust is attached to them, 
and speaks lust to them and stirs lustful thoughts in their mind and, and follows them around and is involved in their life. The Bible says don't give the devil a foothold in Ephesians chapter 4. They say, well, you might have, for example, looked at pornography once and lusted once. And then that opens the door for a demon of lust to come in and really get you, right, and really follow you around. The problem here, they say, is it's not just with individuals. Whole families have demons that are passed down like a demon of lust, generation to generation to generation. Some of the sins that I engage in might not only be demonically caused, but be demonically caused for the same reason my father and my grandfather engaged in similar sins. So these are supposed to be generational um, sin. Let me give you an example um, from, uh, from Neil Anderson in The Bondage Breaker. He says, quote, the last step to freedom, now listen carefully, is to renounce the sins of your ancestors and any curses which may have been placed on you. Familiar spirits can be passed on from one generation to the next if not renounced and your new spiritual heritage in Christ not proclaimed. You are not guilty for any of your ancestors' sins, but Satan has gained access to your family. In addition, deceived people may try to curse you and satanic groups may try to target you, meaning like that Ethiopian woman believes she was cursed by someone else, that curse now might run in it. So he's explicitly saying there's demons assigned to your family. And the question is, does the Bible teach us? But let me be fair to them on one point. What about empirically, just normal observation? Here's what they'll say. And they have a fair point here, but I think they get it wrong in the end. Why do you think it is that so many particular sins run in certain families? So, for example, you have um, alcoholism, let's take it. And you'll look at a family, there's families, no alcoholism, and then there'll be this other family where grandpa, dad, and son all had to struggle with alcoholism their whole life. There does seem to be trends, lust, how about even, because uh, um, they do believe that some mental illness is caused by demons, how about depression? You can see there's families where depression runs more so than in others. Um, violence. Um, you do see these patterns, and they say, see, that's because there's a demon of violence or a demon of lust or a demon of uh, greed or whatever it is. Quick, get rich quick. Uh, you ever met a family where, like, the dad and the son, you're like, you guys are on, a, on get rich quick stuff, for example. They think very, very similar. Anyway, there's two ways to understand that. Yeah, there's demons being passed down again. How would you know that just by empirical observation? But secondly, no, it's because our genetics and our environment shape who we are. We have the same genetics as our family, and we live in the same environment as them. So, for example, um, take, uh, and we know that physical things affect the way we behave. Take testosterone. It makes men aggressive and makes men overly focused on the ladies. So, I mean, 18-year-olds are much more aggressive and much more focused on the ladies than 90-year-olds. Um, so, there, there are different levels of testosterone. If in some families, the high levels of testosterone are genetic or, or other reasons. I'm just giving you an example of that one. Um, it's not surprising that they were all really, really wild when they were younger. Or violence. Studies show that if you live in a violent family, you're much more likely to be violent. Um, and it's pretty darn clear, the social science on this. Um, if your parents beat you, physically beat you, you're much more likely, much more likely to physically beat others. Well, that's the environment you learned from. Like, you learned how to interact with people using violence as a tool. That's not the same as saying a demon of violence came in because of your grandpa, went to, went to your dad, and then came to you. 
So what's their biblical verse? Now, that's the theory. You hear this all the time. What's their main biblical verse for this? Well, it's Exodus, interestingly, one of the Ten Commandments. And I'll read it to you. It's, it's about adultery and don't make any idols. And then it says this, You shall not bow down and worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Listen, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now listen to the next phrase. Punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who love me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me. Uh, did I say love Christ? Who hate me. And then a thousand generations of those who love me. So first thing, it doesn't say the sin is passed down. People just read over it. Sometimes you've been taught something so much that when they say, hey, look, read this verse, you don't even pay, you don't pay attention to the words. You're projecting what you'd already been taught onto the text. So just technically, it doesn't say sin is passed on. It certainly doesn't say demons are passed on. It just says the punishment is. Now, even there, what's going on? Why would the punishment be passed on? These are the Ten Commandments. God gives laws to Israel and says, these laws are for you to follow. If you do them, you will, you will live a good life in the land. If you don't, you'll live a bad life. And for example, whenever they broke the law, or often, another nation would come, for example, Babylon, and take Israel into captivity. Now, imagine you're the second or third generation Israeli, Israelite in Babylon going, well, I didn't do nothing. Like, my grandpa was a jerk, and he disobeyed God. And I, they, yeah, there's generational consequences to how we behave. It affects others. It's not that that person was being, the, the, the grandchild was being punished because of the sin. It's that the punishment carries on down. If we ruin our country, our kids are going to suffer. And it's not, and the same holds for Israel and in the, and their keeping of their covenant with God. Nothing about demons. Nothing about sin being passed on. Again, we can still say, yeah, we see trends in families, but it's genetics and environment that we're seeing. Not something mystical or magical. Um... And, uh, for time's sake, I'll stop there. There's another practice is, quote-unquote, binding Satan. The practice here involves you saying, I bind you, Satan, or I bind you, demon of lust. And in some way, in the spiritual realm, you're sort of tying up that demon and limiting its power, limiting its uh, efficaciousness. Um, again, think, notice the sort of mystical way of viewing it, the metaphysical way. You're, there's a demon, and you're, you have a, a spiritual being, and you're wrapping a spiritual rope around his hands. Again, it's not usually that detailed, but that is how they conceive of it. In the 80s, there was two popular novels, This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness, written by Frank Peretti. It was very popular. The whole novel, and he says, all these, although these are fictional, this is how the spiritual world works, um, is exactly this way. Like a guy was going to, in one scene, a guy was driving to do some ministry, really important ministry. His car broke. But what had happened in this, when, when the author described the spiritual realm, there was a demon with a demon sword through the engine. And they're like, uh, I'm like, okay. But there are people who, who take some of this stuff and go to extremes, and that's why we're warning about it um, this morning. So binding Satan. And <clears throat> so the idea is that you can bind him up. What's their reason for thinking? Oh, let me quote Neil Anderson, again, the bondage breaker. God has granted us the authority to bind what we be bound in heaven. The effectiveness of binding the strong man is dependent upon the leading of the spirit and subject to the scope and limits of the written word of God. Well, let's look at the passages that they say that defend this. The, the, oh, sorry, one more time. Anderson. We agree that every evil spirit is, is in or, uh, or to be bound in silence. They cannot inflict any pain in someone's mind or prevent it if we bind them. 
Now in the name of, this is a prayer. Now in the name of the Lord Jesus, I command you, Satan. Notice he's addressing Satan in the prayer. And all your hosts to release so-and-so and remain bound and gagged so that this demon will, uh, sorry, this person will be able to obey God. So it's, a, again, a common practice. Um, what's the text? Let me read uh, Matthew 20, uh, 12, 25 through 29. We all know the story here. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, so he'd been casting out demons, and the Pharisees say, ah, he's casting out demons by the power of the devil. He's actually on their side. So Jesus says, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, you will be the judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he says this. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up and binds the strong men? Then he can plunder his house. That um, passage right there is, is what's used for binding. And look, he's talking about Satan. He's talking about casting out demons. And right there, Jesus says, you need to bind up the strong man first. But again, context. What's the context? The context is he's casting out demons, and the enemies are saying, that's not legitimate. And he has two replies. First of all, you really think I'm from Satan? Even uh, President Lincoln quoted this, right, in the Civil War, a house divided against itself cannot stand, meaning, like, this Civil War makes no sense. If Satan's in a Civil War, um, it's bad. That's the first point. The second point is, well, fine, even if you think that, look, if you want to go rob somebody, you got to first bind up the guard or the, the man of the house, the strong guy in the house. Then you can have your way plundering their stuff. If I'm able to bind Satan because I'm able to go and have my way in Satan's kingdom by casting out demons, you, by your own admission, I must be stronger than him. I mean, if I'm able to have my way in his kingdom, I have to first tie him up, right? You can't rob someone unless you first tie them up. So his point wasn't, here's a practice of binding up demons that I want you to do. His point was, replying to their objection. Well, if, you, if what you say is right, I must be super powerful because I'm having my way in his kingdom. I must have bound him up, making me more powerful than him. That's the point. There's nothing here about praying to bind up demons. There's no practice recommended. We don't see Jesus doing it. It's a mistake in understanding. Um, we see two other places, and I'll just say them briefly. Uh, Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 16, Jesus says to Peter, and in Matthew 18, to the apostles, whatsoever you bind in heaven will be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose in heaven, will be, uh, sorry, whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And people say, okay, well, see, binding and loosing. Again, notice the magical thinking. When I bind here my words, then in heaven, meaning this mystical reality, things will happen. Well, what's actually going on there? In both contexts, Jesus is saying, Look, we need to build our church. And I'm giving you the authority to build a church. And then he uses binding and loosing language. It's very commonly known, both at that time, but by scholars today, that the term binding and loosening was commonly used by rabbis when they were applying the law. So a, a, a law would say, don't mix, uh, um, don't cook a kid, a, a baby goat, in its mother's milk. That's all the Old Testament would say. But then a rabbi would say, but that applies to not just goats, but to other animals. And when they say, you're bound from doing that, you can't do it with a, with a cow either. No mixing of cheese and, and beef, for example. Or they say, no, 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 that doesn't apply here. They loose it. It was technical authority teaching 
that rabbis did by when they applied the law to specific cases. And Jesus is saying, I'm giving, just like the rabbis have authority to make the rules and to run the place, I'm giving you apostles and you, Peter, I'm building my church on you, and I want you to have the authority to bind and loose. Nothing magical, nothing mysterious. It's simply a misreading of the passage. Let me go for one last one, rebuking Satan. Um, this is the idea that when you, you, know, you pray, let's say someone has a, a demon of lust. And some of my close friends had a deliverance ministry, so I saw this a lot early on in my Christian walk. Someone have a demon of lust in their view. And they would say, demon of lust, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you. And that's supposed to mean uh, it's like harmed and it's weakened and it has to go. And um, the idea here, so what's their, should we first talk to demons in prayer and rebuke them? Or even command them, hey, get out of here. Jesus did it, but Jesus commanding demons doesn't, Jesus also commanded storms to stop. Uh, it doesn't mean it's a model that we should follow, but okay. Um, <clears throat> let me uh, just skip to two, two texts that I think are important on this. One is um, Jude, the book of Jude, there's these, and, and also Second Peter, they're talking about the same false teachers. Do you think of these false teachers they're addressing as like, False teachers who were extremely charismatic. They, I mean, like charismatic of the extreme. You know, speaking in tongues, but crazy prophecies. They were into weird deliverance and angels. And just, they had weird theology, these false teachers, and really talked a lot about angels and demons. Kind of like the, the people I'm describing this morning. And here's what Jude says about these false teachers. In the same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their bodies. They reject authority, and they heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander. The Lord rebuke you. He These people slander whatever they do not understand. So slandering and attacking and rebuking angelic beings, Jude's like, eh, these false teachers doing that kind of stuff? They're nuts. Even the archangel Michael didn't mess around with Satan in this uh, story from the Apocrypha. Uh, same thing in 2 Peter Two, nine. Let me go to one more important one. Spiritual, taking territory, spiritual mapping. Here's the idea. That demons control various territories. <clears throat> that um, we see this in Daniel, um, something that hints at this, and I won't put it on there, but Daniel 9, it says that Arch Archangel Michael comes to Daniel to give him a message. And he says, Daniel says, why are you late? He's like, oh, I got held up. The prince of Persia held me up. And so some sort of spiritual being assigned to Persia held him up. Okay, this is a very debated passage. It's not clear I don't understand it, but it seems like something like that is going on. And then later, a few verses later, he says, well, the, the prince of Greece also was doing this. So it seems like in those two cases, there's some sort of angelic being um, that associated with Persia and Greece that are somehow preventing Michael to give his message. Okay, that's it. Mysterious, we're not clear. They take from this and they say, look, that means the United States has a demon. That means that uh, Canada has a demon. And you can break it all the way down. Each state has their demon. Each city, county, city has their demon. And they say these demons have characteristics. So, for example, very commonly they say San Francisco is a demon of homosexuality. Um, you can see whole cities are characterized by a particular sin. Las Vegas, by gambling and, and, and lust. And New York, maybe, capitalism and, uh, and, and greed, right? And you can see, and so Satan's the god of this world. He controls this territory. And Christians have to push back and take different territory. And again, notice the mystical thinking. They take a, a spiritual map and overlay it on the world. And what they really do is they say, 
like generals on a tabletop map, putting their troops here and there. All right, we need to take, we need to take this territory. And they see themselves as pushing, eventually, pushing the kingdom of Satan out through, through spiritual warfare and engaging in this territorial reasoning. Um, mistaken. So let's, let me just close on this. These mistaken practices are things that you should watch out for. If you've not, some of you already know exactly what I'm talking about. You're familiar with them. You've heard them. Real spiritual warfare, as described in Ephesians chapter 6, for example, he says, take on the armor of God. Take up the shield of faith. What's the shield of faith? It's faith. If you want to be protected, it says, from the darts of the enemy, you need faith. If you trust Jesus, if you trust God, that will protect you from the schemes of the devil. It says, take up the breastplate of righteousness. What is that? That's being righteous, both getting the righteousness that comes from Christ by faith, and then also in your personal walk with God, your own sanctification. The more righteous you are, both from God and in yourself, the process that God's engaging in you, you're stronger against the schemes of the devil. It's not this magical, mystical, metaphysical reasoning that distracts us from the real work of genuine spiritual warfare. It gets bizarre, and it can go down a rabbit's hole that we're not interested in. Thank you, and let me close us in prayer. Father, we thank you that you provided everything that we need to live the Christian life, to fight back against our flesh, the world, and the devil. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to think clearly about these things, to be aware that we really are fighting a battle, that we really are engaged, uh, that there really is demons in the world, and that they really are an enemy of ours. It's not fictional, it's not made up, it's not metaphorical, they're real. But you've given us the tools, you've given us the victory. We ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would um, enlighten us in ways to use them, give us the strength to stand and stand firm, and to use the armor you've provided us to fight back. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.